Good morning. <clears throat> My subject today is the love and faithfulness of God. And I'm going to start actually in Acts chapter 17, if you want to turn there. This is a passage that uh, part of my instructions said they wanted me to comment on. And I think it's an appropriate place to start. In Acts chapter 17, we have Paul on his second journey, and he's going through several different places, and he comes to the city of Athens. And I want to start reading in verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them, At Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him. And some said, what does this babbler say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them of Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but to tell or hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. It's interesting that Paul... I'm going to stop right there for a second. We'll get to the rest in a little while. It's interesting that Paul has this conversations while he's in Athens. Around 600 B.C., an unknown plague invaded that city. Does that sound familiar? An unknown plague invaded that city. And after many attempts to call on the various Greek gods and goddesses for a solution, it continued. No matter what the people did, it seemed in their minds the anger of the god or gods responsible could not be satisfied. A poet and philosopher by the name of Epimedes, Epimenides sorry, was called from Crete to give his, his advice. He took a number of sheep to the Areopagus and let them go free. As they wandered through the streets, watchers were told to mark the locations everywhere a sheep would lay down for a bit. After the sheep moved on, the people were told to offer a sacrifice, not the sheep that did that, it's going to go somewhere else now, but offer a sacrifice on that spot and build an altar to a local deity. The historian Diogenes Laertius wrote about this in his book entitled Lives of the Eminent Philosophers. This created literally thousands of small monuments to various gods throughout the city. And the tradition of small tributes to the, to the various gods and goddesses continued for a long time. The historian Petronius 
records that by the time Paul arrived, there were at least 30,000 altars throughout the city to various gods or goddesses or objects of worship. Now keep in mind that the estimated population, as near as I could find, ranged between 10 and 20,000 people that lived in the city. And there were over 30,000 of these altars. This included all 12 major deities of the Greek pantheon. You've, You've heard about those. As well as nature worship, like the sun, the moon, the stars, animals, etc. Hero cults, mystery religions, and ancestor worship. Over time, this gave rise to many superstitions and beliefs that became ingrained and argued about in their society. It even led them to honor a god they called Agnostos Theos, the unknown god, or the god we cannot know. Some attributed the stay of this plague that they had encountered to this unknown god. This was because they could not positively be sure which god or gods caused it or which gods had stopped it. So this is the Athens that Paul encounters with not just the idols at the Areopagus, but thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other smaller tributes and altars all throughout the city. So let's continue in verse 24. Paul tells them, God who made the world, now remember he's telling them about this agnostos theos, this unknown God. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needs anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. God provided all of the creation so that man would desire to find their creator. Then God provided further proofs so that we could find him. David, in Psalm 19 and 1, says the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Asaph, in Psalm 50 and verse 6, says let the heavens declare the righteousness of God, for he himself is righteous, is the righteous judge. Psalm 97, 6 says the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Every culture everywhere on the face of the earth that has ever existed has some concept 
of God in their society, even if some individuals within that society have chosen to reject the very idea of God. Paul quoted from their own literature to show them how they did recognize that there was a God that was the originator of life. He quotes, right, uh, for we are also his offspring. You remember Epimedes, the poet and philosopher that was called to solve the problem and had the idea of the sheep? In his writings, he is one of the poets that quotes this, that makes this statement. There was another one also that I, uh, I know of by the uh, name of Aratus. He also made this statement, and I don't know which one made it first or how many others made that statement. But within their society, they believed this concept. However, man, man's desire to find God often leads to a misunderstanding of who God is and what he wants. Over in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Now, if I understand correctly, this is around five to seven years after Paul was in Athens. So about five to seven years later, Paul writes this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what they what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Man as a whole refused the truths that God made known about himself. This led them not to recognize or accept the one true God. But because there was an understanding within them that there had to be a creator, man started looking looking somewhere else for that source. They thought they were discovering how intelligent and aware they were but they were actually showing how futile and foolish they were. Their desire for a creator caused them to project that role onto things existing around them. They invented groups of gods and individual gods that could work together. This ultimately led them to believe that these gods could be reached in ways that man determined. They thought that through great accomplishments or endeavors, that would cause gods or the God they were trying to acknowledge to acknowledge them. They thought that anything good that happened to them was because one or more of the gods was pleased with their efforts, and that anything bad that happened was because one or more of the gods was displeased with their efforts. This complicated understanding led to many conflicts. It was possible to have one God or group group of gods pleased with you and one God or group of gods displeased with you. The result was disagreement and conflict among the gods. That led to a realization that the only way for this to be resolved was for the 
gods to have conflict resolution the same way man often does. With fighting, arguing, and compromise. As those who believe came to understand, their gods were not much different than they were. So Paul begins, there in Acts 17, he begins to explain to them who this God is. And he tells them some things about that God. He tells them some things that makes God different. The first thing he says is that God created us. Well, that wasn't much different than some of their philosophies and beliefs because they believed that the gods had created them. Which at its root, did not make a whole lot of sense because how could something that I just made create me who had just made it? (laughs) The logic escapes me. Paul also told them that God wants them to find him. Well, that wasn't a whole lot different than some of their belief systems and understandings. They believed that that the gods, their gods, wanted them to seek them out. But something different that Paul said was that that God cannot be represented by something that is man-made. This was different from what they understood. They believed they could represent and, and see their gods in a physical form by something they had made. But Paul also brings something else up at the very end. He says that this unknown God, the God that he is trying to help them understand, is going to judge the world by someone he raised from the dead, his son. This is a totally different and unique concept to them. See, they believed that their gods were only going to do something for them if they did something for their gods first. That was the way they understood the relationship. And Paul says, I want you to understand that the one true God has already done something for you before you even knew who he was. And that he's going to judge the world by this man, Jesus Christ. So it was in this city, Athens, And in this place, the Areopagus, where Epimenides Epimenides, gave his advice, that Paul begins to explain to them the love that the one true God has for them and his faithfulness to honor his promises. This unknown God loves them enough, this agnostos theos, loves them enough to take drastic measures to save them from judgment, and he is faithful to all his promises. We're going to spend some time talking about this love of God and the faithfulness that we can rely on him by. We're going to start in 1 John chapter 4, if you want to turn there. If you want to do a study of love... I'm going to suggest to you that you start in the book of 1 John. John spends a lot of time in this letter talking about love in many different forms and in many different aspects. But in chapter 4, and I'm going to start reading in verse 7. 
John writes this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. For this is the love of, this is the, sorry, verse 9, in this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a perpetuation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God is love. This is a statement we talk about. This is a statement we sing about. We discuss this. We understand this. When we love God and when we love each other, we are imitating God. Now, the difficulty in that statement is that God's love is not human love. It's not the same. Human love, normal human love, says, I love you because you love me. I love you because you did something for me. I love you because you helped me in some way. Of course, we take that the other direction too. The flip side of that, I hate you because you hate me. I hate you because you did something to me. Eventually, we get to the point where we hate somebody because of what they may do to us in the future. That is not what the love of God is all about. In Romans chapter 5, I'm going to turn there and read that. Romans chapter 5. Just a short little passage from there. Romans chapter 5, verses six, starting in verse 6. For when we were with, still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God's love, God loved us when we were sinners and when we didn't even know who he was. God does not love us because we deserve it. He loves us because we don't. We, When we look at this passage and study this passage, a lot of times we get caught up in verse 7. We get caught up there and we debate and scrutinize and analyze what's the difference between a righteous man and a good man? Why would somebody... Why would somebody... Uh, scarcely die for one and dare to die for the other. We get caught up in that. I don't want you to get caught up too caught up in verse 7. I want you to think about what the point is that Paul is making. The point that Paul is making is that we as human beings will love one another, but a lot of times there's conditions or stipulations. But God doesn't love us because we love him. He loves us even when we don't love him. There's a difference there. God's plan, God's love, does not include a waiting period. We don't obey Him and then wait for the results later. We don't see 
after we love and obey him if we're going to be found worthy. It was already brought up, that joyous time last night with those three baptisms. When those three young ladies went down in the water in obedience based on their confession and their belief, when they come up, came up out of the water, they were in a saved condition. They were complete. They were perfect. They were whole. They were sinless. They didn't come up out of the water and wait and hope that God would accept them. That's not how the love of God works. Jesus, who is God, died for everyone, including those that reject him, so that that sacrifice would be ready, ready to purge anyone from their sins the moment they were obedient. That's the kind of love that God has. God's love is always there, always ready, always willing. In Back to 1 John again. I told you there's a lot about love in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and keep His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Has anybody either read the book or paid attention to any discussions going on that talk about the five love languages? You know, we won't wait for a microphone. Just shout out some of the ones you can think of. What are, what are the five love languages that are kind of listed in that set of writings? Okay, gift giving, quality time, acts of service. Sorry. Words of affirmation, physical touch. Those are the five love languages that have been identified uh, by humans, how humans interact and show their love for one another. Did you ever stop and think about what is God's love language? John just told us. Do you see it in there? What is God's love language? I'm going to give you a hard time because... Both the high school, college class, and the junior high class found it and saw it. What? Yep. Keep his commandments. Obedience is God's love language. If we want to show God that we love him, we will keep his commandments. We will be obedient. That's God's love language. We often do not follow his commandments consistently. We, we don't always approach him in his love language. But he loves us anyway. This is what truly defines the love of God. This is how God loves. Now this love, as Paul talks about in a couple of his writings, this love is not a license to commit sin. Just because God loves us at all times, that does not give us the right to be disobedient. Even though God loves us, there will still be consequences for our disobedience. God's love, God's, God's unconditional love, is meant to be a motivator to do better. I don't sin 
so that God can love me. I avoid sin because God loves me. When God discusses love, in the scripture, when we read of God talking about loving him or him loving us, this is his definition. This is the understanding that he has of that term. If we are to love God and others completely, this is the understanding we also must have. You ever wonder why God said to love those that hate us? Because that's what he does. That's what he does. He loves even those that hate him. Again, this is not a natural under human understanding of the idea of love. We have to learn to love this way. The only way we can learn to love that this way is to listen to what God has to say about love, because God is love, and that's the way he loves. We can only learn that kind of love from God. We also, because it's not natural, a natural human uh, concept, we have to work. We have to continually work on maintaining that kind of love. Since it's not natural to us, we have to practice this. Now, I'm an old band director, <laughs> so the concept of practice means something to me. And there's two connotations to the idea of practice. One connotation is you do something over and over and over and over so you can get better at it. And that's one of the ways we have to practice love. We have to keep doing it over and over and over, trying to get better at it. Because it doesn't necessarily come natural to us, this kind of love. The other connotation of practice, though, is the idea of making it a habit. Having it be something in your life that you do as a habit on a regular basis. You practice something. We have to work on that too. We have to work on it so that it becomes a natural habit that we have. Loving one another like this. Even loving our enemies. It's been brought up before. Do we love that neighbor that so irritates us? Do we love that coworker that we just can't get along with? Do we love that boss that just doesn't seem to understand who I am and how hard I'm trying? Do we love that guy that just cut us off in traffic? Do we love like God loves? We can't discuss the idea of love without going to 1 Corinthians 13. And I do want to go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. In 1 John, Paul spends time defining and helping us, try, trying to help us understand love. And in 1 Corinthians 13, that's what Paul is doing. This is Paul's turn to try to help us understand what love is. But to understand this chapter, we have to see the context that Paul is writing it in. We have to understand uh, the reason Paul puts this writing in here, puts this section in here. 
So in chapter 12, we won't read it, but in chapter chapter 12, Paul is talking about the power and the control of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Spirit of God and that there are many manifestations of that Spirit. There's many ways that God expresses himself uh, by mankind, but only one God providing all of those expressions. That's what Paul's talking about in chapter 12. All of those gifts are equally important. It depends on the situation and the need. Having the gift of tongues when I went over to the Philippines would have been a wonderful gift. But if I'm sitting by the bedside of somebody who's dying, the ability of speaking in tongues would do me no good. See, the importance of those gifts depended on the situation and the need. So Paul starts to talk about what are the best gifts. You're going to argue, the Corinthians, you're going to argue over what is the best gift to have. Well, let me show you. That's how he ends what we call chapter 12. I will show you a more excellent way. And so he starts into what we call chapter 13. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become a sounding brass or clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. And though I bestow all my gifts, uh, all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. Paul says none of those tremendous actions, though in and of themselves are all honorable and good, none of those tremendous actions are worth anything without love being the motivator. There has to be something behind the action. So he starts in verse 7, or verse 4, sorry. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Now this passage, and I think rightly so, we use it to help us understand some of the small components of love and how we can express that love correctly to those around us. But I want you to think about it in that this is the way God loves. This, If this is love, then this is God. Because God is love. This is the way God loves you and this is the way God loves me. He's not puffed up. He's not prideful. He doesn't seek his own. He wants what's best for us. He doesn't rejoice in our sin, but he rejoices when we accomplish and and do the truth, when we're obedient. This is how God loves. So then, Paul talks in verse 8, Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, they will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect or complete, some of your versions may say, has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly. 
but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. All these other gifts, all these other manifestations of God in mankind, all these gifts of the Spirit, all these actions of love even toward one another, all of those other gifts are going to fail, he says. They're all going to fail. Love, however, he says, in verse 13, will not fail. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. It all comes down to faith, hope, and love. And they're all three necessary. Hope is something we are looking forward to. It's some expectation that we have. Eventually, that hope will be realized and we will experience what we hope for. Peace, comfort, safety, security, no death, no pain, no sorrow, the presence of God. These are all things that we hope to have. Eventually, if we're found obedient and given admission into heaven, we will have all those things. We will have no more need for hope. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's what that hope is based on. And it's the evidence of the things we cannot see. Eventually, we will not need faith because we will see all the evidence. We will see God. We will see Christ. We will see heaven. We will see his power and glory, his majesty. We will know all those things. That leaves godly love. Godly love is not an emotion. That's something I want us to understand. That is a big difference between human love and godly love. Human love often we think of as an emotion. But what God wants us to have is not an emotion, it's a decision. Godly love is a choice. God loves us, decided to love us because he made us and he wants what's best for us. We love God because he has consistently proved that he is worthy of our love and is faithful to his promises. We'll talk about that later. But love will never fail because its purpose will never end. God is love, and he will never end. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, Paul writes to the, the, the brethren at Thessalonica about some things that he is praying for for them, and that he's thankful for them. There's three things in those verses that Paul says he's thankful for. He says he's thankful for their work of faith. Increasing our faith is something that takes action on our part. We have to be integrally involved in what's going on. He gives thanks for their labor of love. Showing our love to others takes consistent and constant effort. Yes, sometimes it can be a labor. And he gives thanks for their patience of hope. 
our hope will be realized one day. But it will take time, and we must be patient. So Paul gives thanks for their work of faith, their labor of love, their patience of hope. All three of these things, faith, hope, and love, are required by God to be pleasing to him. We must continue to work toward those goals and to be patient while we wait for their realization. Now I'm going to pause here because we've spent quite a bit of time talking about the love of God and the difference between human love and God's love. And so I want to give a chance for any comments or questions or thoughts. I, I won't. I won't claim to have all the answers, but there's enough people here that we can probably find the answer. It's too hot. Nobody wants to move. Okay. (laughs) Well, we'll go on then. We won't make it through the next section, but we will uh, get started. I want to talk now about faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. We're going to go back. No, we'll go to 2 Peter first. 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> 2 Peter chapter 3, starting, uh, starting with verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in which both I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the coming of us, that the, of the, the apostles and the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. And we're going to continue in a minute, but I just want to stop and talk about that for just a minute. He talks, he tells us that scoffers are going to come, and the the scoffer's philosophy is going to be, since it's never happened, it never will happen. Since Christ hasn't come yet, he's not going to. I've had people tell me that. Have you? I've had people tell me if he if they made that promise 2,000 years ago and he hasn't fulfilled it yet, I don't think he's going to. Well, that's kind of an interesting philosophy to have. Because those people that say that to me don't believe that in anything else. There's a saying, right, in sports? Records are made to be broken. What is a record in sports? By definition, what is a record in sports? Something nobody's ever done before. That's what a record is. 
That's what a record is. I told the high school class, I know it doesn't look it, but I used to be a long-distance runner. And I can remember in high school, when, well, early high school, junior high, when people said, well, nobody will ever run a four-minute mile. That just can't be done. The human body cannot withstand 60-second laps on a track four times in a row. It just can't do it. And then somebody did it. Somebody ran the four-minute mile. Now, when I was in high school, no high schoolers ran a four-minute mile. The Olympians, the professionals did. Some college kids could. But nobody in high school ran a four-minute mile. By the time I was in college, there were high school kids running a four-minute mile. Now it happens quite frequently. There were kids in the high school class that watched high school kids at a track meet run a four-minute or less mile. (laughs) Just because it hasn't ever been done doesn't mean it can't be done. Forget about sports. Look at your phone. I'd have never believed in high school when I was in my first computer class, those of you that are computer nerds, with an Apple IIe green screen with five and a quarter inch floppy disks. I would have never believed that I could have put the power of every computer that was in the state of Kansas at the time in my hand. I'd have never believed that. And I must be getting to be an old fogey because they're starting to amaze me with stuff they're doing now too. Now, all of my phone can be on my wrist. How is that possible? Just because it's never been done doesn't mean it can't be done. This philosophy is flawed. In fact, Peter says there's one major reason that this philosophy is false is flawed. What did those do the people that think that what have they forgotten? The flood. Just because it had never flooded didn't mean it couldn't. Just because it had never been done didn't mean it couldn't be done. And then he says that this is the same process, this is the same thing that is happening when waiting for the end of time, which is going to be signified by the second coming of Christ. Everything's going to be destroyed when Christ comes. Saying that because he's never come, hasn't come yet, he's never going to, does not mean it won't happen. Does not mean it can't happen. So Peter writes in verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing. Though with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and as a, th- and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, at some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. This this verse, verse 8, I have a lot of discussions with people about this verse. I won't say it's the most misunderstood, because I think there are verses in the scriptures that are more misunderstood than this one, but it's got to be up there. It's got to be one of the top verses. 
that's misunderstood. This verse is not about how God keeps time. This is not about God's calendar or about God's clock. Peter is not talking about keeping time in this passage. The context is not about that. The context is about the faithfulness of God to keep his promises. That's what Peter is talking about. Peter is trying to express to us that it doesn't matter whether God promises something and he fulfills that promise the next day or he doesn't fulfill that promise for 2,000 years, the promise is still going to be fulfilled. That's what that's what Peter is talking about. The word there, slack, that's an interesting verse to me. The Lord is not slack, slack as some men count slackness. Peter is making a comparison. He's comparing me to God. He's comparing me to God. Both of those words, slack and slackness, they're based on the same root Greek word. That Greek word is the word bradus or bradus, B-R-A-D-U-S, and it means slow, dull, inactive. This is the part I think is important. Slow of mind to apprehend or believe. God is not slack, as some men count slackness. That does not describe God. It does describe me. Sometimes I am slow. Sometimes I am inactive. Sometimes I am slow of mind to apprehend or understand or believe. I don't always understand the ramifications of a promise. Because of that, I often find reasons not to complete a promise or to completely forget it. Sometimes that's on accident because I'm human and sometimes it's on purpose. I shouldn't be that way. That is what Peter is talking about. We often promise things without understanding the possible results. And one of the things that can cause is for us to forget the promises. You, you've heard the phrase, an, an elephant never forgets. We have a granddaughter by the name of Eleanor. And the saying around our family is, an Eleanor never forgets. Because if you promise her something, she is not going to let you forget that. She will remind you constantly until you achieve whatever that promise was. We can pro- she can come over to our house to visit on a Monday and we will promise her something. And on Saturday, when she sees us, she will remind us of what we promised her on Monday. She does not forget. We need to be that way. We need to not forget our promises. The other thing it can cause us to do is to just decide not to fulfill the promise. Because we don't like the result. We don't like how that promise is going to work out for us. 
I had a couple of different examples, but I'm just going to narrow it down to Peter. Peter in Matthew chapter 25, verses 33 and 35, when Jesus is talking to Peter about the fact that he's going to deny him three times. It's not a possibility. It's not a probability. It's not something that may happen. Jesus says, you will deny me three times. It's going to happen. He even gives him a time frame. But Peter denies it. Peter says two things. He says, I will never stumble. That's a promise that Peter made to Jesus. I will never stumble. Even if all these other guys are made to stumble, it won't happen to me. I will never stumble. And the other thing he promises is he says, I will die first before I let anything happen to you. I will die first. Those are two promises that Peter made. Peter did not fully understand the ramifications of those promises. And when it came time for him to fulfill those promises, to not deny Christ, to be willing to go to the cross with him if necessary, Peter failed. Peter did not fulfill those promises because the ramifications of those promises, the cost to him was too much. And he was not willing to pay it. God is not like man. He understands and immedi- completely and immediately the ramifications of promises he makes. This is because he can see the end of the promise before it is made. Even though he can see all the possible decisions and outcomes, though, he still allows us free will. We can decide the end of the promise of God. God already knows, already knows that he will keep his end of the promise. He will do what he said he will do. He is not slack like we are. So we'll close this hour with 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The question becomes not whether or not God will do what he said he will do, but whether or not we believe that God will fulfill his promise. That's the question. Will he really forgive us and cleanse us? Or do we think this is an empty promise? We have no choice but to count on what we know, to rely on what we understand and can see about the faithfulness of God. And in the next hour, we are going to explore that a little further. You have your break.